Shadowsoft, a leading Kubernetes systems integrator, is excited to announce the launch of Kubernetes Academy, a free online education platform to teach the skills needed to become proficient in Kubernetes. The Shadowsoft Kubernetes Academy platform offers courses and resources for learners of all levels, from beginners just starting to learn about containerization to experienced professionals looking to dive deeper into the intricacies of Kubernetes. Kubernetes Academy is now available at academy.shadowsoft.com. Start learning today and join the thousands of IT professionals already on the path to becoming Kubernetes experts. Shadowsoft helps you make optimal possible. Rob, thanks for joining the podcast. Excited to have you on with us today. Well, you're very welcome. I'm excited to be here too. Awesome. So we had uh, talked offline for a couple of minutes and realized that um, your world is uh, at the center of all the things that we're doing uh, day to day here at Shadowsoft. So this is going to be a really exciting conversation and uh, really pumped to talk about it. But for the listening audience, We'd love to learn a little bit about you. So can you give us a you know, short bio on um, how you started, how you got into tech, and where you are today? Well, interesting. I'm very old. So I started in 1979 uh, in high school. I used a Commodore PET with 4K of RAM, a 6502 processor running at 1 megahertz. That's how I started <laughs> my programming career. Very, very tight, but didn't do a whole lot then. Um, I taught myself uh, basic and assembler. Uh, I had my first real programming job. I was 16. I worked on a TRS-80 computer, if anyone in the audience remembers those. I, did, I worked for a convenience store and did all their inventory in that computer written in basic. Um, later on, I took, oh, I worked with DBase. Oh, let me go through my languages first. Sorry. So basic <laughs> assembler, modula 2. DBase 3 and 4, and then Object Pascal. Uh, I wrote a uh, point-of-sale system in DBase and slash Object Pascal. I did that. And then I took a programming job at a major uh, supermarket in, in Canada where I grew up um, doing COBOL for all things. So I did COBOL <laughs> for about a year and a half, two years. Then um, I was one of the first people in Canada to get a developer preview of a new programming language from Borland called Delphi. So uh, I started studying that and worked for a couple of companies, uh, consulting companies doing Delphi programming. Then I had my own consulting firm where I did programming for about a year and a half. And then I was recruited by Borland themselves to work on Delphi and C++ Builder back in the day. So that was like 1999. 2002, I joined a company in Los Angeles um, and I was with them for 17 years. Um, from I started doing everything from, you know, C sharp programming there uh, through to you know managing the developer. Like, dev, I was director of development and QA, and then I started the DevOps department in that company. And we, I think we started that. Let me think, uh, 2012 or something like that. Um, so. In charge so pretty, of things like pretty you know, early on, then that they oh, kind of the height of everybody talking about DevOps, right? It was right in the middle of all that, so I think that's why my boss said, "Hey, we need to do DevOps here." So I started that, built that team up. Um, 
I left there uh, 2019, joined the current company I'm in, Embers. They brought me in specifically as a Kubernetes expert. And so I'm sure we'll talk about more about that kind of stuff. But I've been with them for almost four years. Uh, April 1st, I think next year will be four years. So I've already got a rabbit trail. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love this. So, I mean, you're a developer, right? So I was. Yeah. Well, yes, I haven't done it in a number of years now. But yeah, my last programming language I was really heavily involved in was C Sharp. Um, since then, of course, more scripting languages now. Like I did a lot of PowerShell with the last company. Now it's Bash and Python, you know, uh, Terraform, like infrastructure's code. So a right. lot of that now. Yeah, so you know we have this debate all the time internally because we're we're an infrastructure focused company, and we help customers with uh, Kubernetes. But having developers who really learn how to leverage the power of Kubernetes is like kind of the secret sauce because you can you can set up a great Kubernetes implementation, but your like your developers really need to understand it as well, and they can really unlock the power of it. That's what we've seen with our customers and the type of people we put on engagements. So interesting that your background started in development. Yeah. Well, that also is a hindrance too, because I was a developer, I was not an ops person. So I had to spend a lot of time learning things like networking and VPCs and, you know, all the stuff that ops people take for granted that like honestly was over my head for a lot of it. So I had to <laughs> relearn all that. Um, taking a step backwards, the reason I got into Kubernetes was when I was with the previous company, um, I was really concerned. We were all bare metal, 100%. Like we had, we weren't on the cloud at all. We had our own data centers. We had multiple data centers. So everything was done, you know, VM, uh, VMware, whatever. And I was trying to think of how do I make developer environments really easy? So I was doing a lot of research into containers like LXC, right? Those mm -hmm. really low level containers. And so I built up an environment with that DNS. And I had to relearn all of these things altogether. And it was after that, that um, I found Kubernetes, right? And when I saw it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, cause I was studying OpenShift at the time. And I'm like, it was so confusing. There were so many different vendors and Kubernetes right. just clicked. It clicked. Yeah. You know, and what's funny is, you know, Kubernetes at its core kind of does its thing and then everybody else is taking Kubernetes and kind of extending it. So like, you know, you mentioned OpenShift and we have lots of customers that use OpenShift. OpenShift is a PaaS. It's not raw Kubernetes. It's not like just an overlay for Kubernetes. It's like, it's a whole thing. It's got all these, you know, tools and it has some opinion to it, right? It's, it was really meant to try to challenge Pivotal at the end of the day. So, you know, it's kind of I funny. spoke. No, no, I misspoke. I didn't mean OpenShift. I meant the other one, uh, OpenStack or whatever. I can't remember. The oh, one that, gotcha, with, yeah. With Ceph and all of those other, you know which one I'm talking about. Is it yeah, OpenStack? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> OpenStack, yeah, it would have been that. Although they're, they're using, you know, they're using Ceph and OpenShift now too. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, no, uh, but I, everybody's I using the, the other same one stuff. Because they, I meant, OpenStack because every vendor had their own implementation and it was wildly different from everyone else's implementation, yes. right? Whereas Kubernetes had one standard definition, basically, and people followed it. They made sure that people followed the right open source that we had for Kubernetes, which I 
because I think they learn from the mistakes of the past. Yeah, I, I thought OpenStack was going to change the world. Um, I made a big <laughs> bet on it, and uh, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, was, I studied uh, it, it was a such lot. a mess. And, <laughs> I mean, I looked into it, and I, I learned everything about it. I'm like, how are we ever going to implement this? That's what I was thinking. And then when I saw Kubernetes, I'm like, oh, we can implement this. Right. And I started with Kubernetes on 1.4 um, on bare metal, right? Um, that wow. was a challenge itself, right? So um, I didn't do it by myself. We hired a, a company to consult with us, and that was Core OS. And just about a year after we worked with them, they were bought by Red Hat. Or right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's funny. So pivoting back slightly because this is kind of a funny story. It's a little look at me, Louie. Um, <clears throat> So I met uh, Chris Kemp um, at a conference. Um, you know, he's the guy who did the OpenStack stuff for NASA, you know, kind of was like the co-creator mm-hmm. of it and um, spent 30 minutes eating a ham sandwich with him. And I just, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be, this is going to be the next thing. Here it is. It's ready. And he was, he was promoting uh, some company he was at. It was like a hardware appliance that like put on you know, you stacked on top of a bunch of metal and um, it made it open stack. And uh, I was like, oh, this is going to be it. It's going to be so great. And um, everybody was ramping up their open stack practice. And it just 12, 12 months later just fell over. <laughs> Nobody did anything with it. It's just, kind of, I mean, there was a few companies that did. I know AT&T took a huge swing at it and some people did some stuff with it, but <clears throat> it was basically a telco play by the end of it. Yeah. Oh, it OpenStack was great for consultants. You know, it oh, for made sure. a lot of consultants a lot of money, right? So, yeah, we 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 stayed away. We we're like, oh, this is this is so so shaky. Um it's probably a good idea. So, real quick, um in Burse, you guys focus on helping people do expenses. Businesses do expenses. Is that a fair way to kind of frame it up? Expense and invoice management, yeah. So we're we do from the enterprise all the way down to the small company. So uh, when I joined, it was actually called Chrome River when I joined almost four years ago, and then we got accumulated and bought up a bunch of other companies and got squeezed together, and we became Embers. So we have we have offices all over the world. We have offices in um, Spain. Uh, Amsterdam, Toronto, Montreal, San Francisco, LA, Portland, Maine, San Diego. I'm sure I'm missing a couple. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was in the LA office um, until about the last month when I moved here to Vegas. So it was uh, interesting when I came in there. I was the I was brought in as the Kubernetes expert. They had nobody on staff doing Kubernetes. They had a consulting firm that built up their Kubernetes infrastructure a few months before I got there and they did well. This is the first time they were implementing Kubernetes. Very first time uh, this consulting firm, they did great on documentation, awesome documentation, Sure. but they were using cube spray and Ansible to build up, you know, um, Kubernetes on EC2 instances on AWS. Um, kind of a mishmash at the time. You got to remember this like four years ago. I think this was like right. 1.12, 1.11, Right, of Kubernetes. So I had to come in and rewrite the whole thing. Gotcha. So when, when you got there and you had to rewrite it, you know, this kind of dovetails into my next question. What was your experience 
adopting Kubernetes, you know, you're walking in, it's there, now you're in charge of it. What, what, what were some of the things, what were some of the steps you had to go through to kind of wrangle it, I guess? Yeah, the first couple of months, all I did was like read source code, right? Read, read all their Ansible plays, looked at how everything was set up, their Nginx config. Um, it, you know, yeah, they had, of course, the etcd and uh, the um, kubelet, all that stuff was all configured in Ansible for the most part. So I had to read through all that to make sure they're doing everything the right way. And a couple of things I wasn't a big fan of are QA and prod environments were in the same cluster, um, just different namespaces, you know, QA namespace, prod namespace. Um, So uh, my boss uh, went back to India for a few weeks for vacation or whatever. And while she was gone, I decided, well, let's switch all this to EKS. So that's what I did. <laughs> you know? she, she said, don't switch anything yet. Uh, we'll talk when I come back. And I talked to her boss, our VP, and I said, like, I want to do this like right now. And he says, yeah, go for it. So I ended up switching it all over except for our cluster in Canada because Canada didn't have EKS yet. So that was the one cluster we had to leave for like eight months on its own um, doing its thing. Uh, until we got it converted over at the end of the year when we finally, you know, got a uh, cluster in Canada. I was, I was looking at the roadmap like daily, clicking the button, like when's it in right. Canada? Is it in Canada yet? Yeah. I want it now. <laughs> so then we switched over to um, EKS and did everything in Terraform. Got it. Now that makes oh, sense. Almost everything. Right. So, so moving to EKS, I mean, you were running Kubernetes on EC2, but you were, you know, going to EKS like allows you to rely on Amazon for some of that management, right? So that that's a huge value to you, I would assume. Oh yeah. Well, at first, okay. So Got to remember, I was maintaining Kubernetes since like one dot four on bare metal and on other things, so I knew the control plane very well. And part of right. it was like I was afraid to give up that control. But when I realized that they were charging like ten cents an hour or something like that for to manage that control plane, and I'm like yeah i don't need it anymore and then i get a chance to concentrate more on the day two operations security logging metrics things like that are way more important than that control plane let someone else manage the control plane you know that's fine but you got to do auto scaling you got to do load balancing you got to do security you got to do you know all of these other things that are way more important that you might as well concentrate on Right. Yeah. So, so obviously at this point you've been, you've easily been able to justify the decision moving to EKS and um, it's probably had a great impact for for your business, probably like your team's ability to support it and uh, attract talent. And, you know, EKS is very, it's the most popular version of Kubernetes out there because of Amazon's reach. So it's probably been like a great decision for you guys, I would assume. Oh, absolutely. It's been the most stable system we have. Um, before we switched to EKS, yes, there'd be some problems here and there with the, you know, the one they set up with CubeSpray, basically a hand-rolled version of Kubernetes. Now um, it's basically self-serve, right? It works on its own. Uh, we never had any problems. We had at the very beginning, I might as well jump into this a little bit because I know you're going to ask me about problems we may have had. We had problems with the networking at the very first, okay? Uh, the, before uh, ECAS, they were using Nginx to route everything. 
Um, after when we switched to EKS, we were using the AWS load balancer controller. Right. And the problem with the load balancer controller is one, every service wants its own load balancer, which can get kind of expensive. So we end up putting all the services into one load balancer, which worked for a while until we ran out of target groups. Um, that was a big mm. issue. We were having problems like um, things would fail all the time. Um, so we switched over to using Glue um, from, um, I don't remember the name of the company right now. Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking anyways, about it right now. <laughs> yeah, Glue. Anyways, they're basically uh, an interface to Envoy. So Envoy is the networking they have, and Glue basically sets up a bunch of configuration for you. So it builds the, the Envoy configuration, which can be very, very big. Right? right. So once we switched over to that, all our problems went away. All of them. Right. Mm-hmm. So basically the point is getting the networking right will solve all your problems. And now <laughs> with the new and with the new AWS load balancer controller, um, we don't even create load balancers through that anymore. We create them in um, Terraform and then we just use the target group binding to bind stuff together and everything just works. Interesting. Real quick, before you made, you were clearly doing hand-rolled Kubernetes on ECTs. You're already in Amazon. Did you consider looking at other distributions in the cloud like GKE or AKS, or was it always just going to be Amazon? It was always going to be Amazon because we're an Amazon shop. Actually, when I joined there, we had some stuff on uh, another smaller time provider, uh, Rackspace. We were on Rackspace for a few of the clusters. And the first three months I was there, we had a huge move to go from Rackspace into AWS for, for that environment. And it went so smooth. It, like the guys I work with are super professional. We had meetings every week about how we we're going to migrate. And the migration took three hours one Saturday. It was absolutely beautiful. It's the best wow. migration I've ever seen. Right. Yeah, three, three hours. So, pretty good. <laughs> it, it was amazing. It was, I was impressed with the people I worked with. I just joined this company, you know, in three months, we end up moving a whole environment off of one cloud into another. And yeah, we've been AWS for the longest time. Gotcha. So how far along in your Kubernetes journey do you think you are, your organization? Like if you had to put a, Our, a phase or a, a percentage on it, because I'm sure there's more to do, but... Where do you think you are? There's always more to do, but we're very stable. Um, We've been in production for years at this point, at least three years, three and a half years. Um, We we have a fairly good CI/CD implementation, which needs to change. It's it's on Jenkins. Um, We're doing a lot of work to get off of Jenkins. Um, Our Kubernetes deployment now runs through Ansible and Jenkins will call Ansible to actually do the deployment. Uh, we're switching some of these things over to GitHub Actions, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some work there. So that I would consider that like maintenance work. As for growth, um, we're always looking at what's new coming out of the CNCF and seeing what's there. Uh, we want to do more in the Argo CD space uh, for deployment. We do. One of our clusters is used by the machine learning team, and they heavily use Argo for workflows and for CD. So they run all their models in Jupyter notebooks and stuff on various pods, and 
they bring it all together and everything is just working over there very well. Gotcha. So, so still, still some stuff you want to do, but you know, you, obviously you guys are, you guys are success story, right? We hear so many horror stories around going to Kubernetes and usually that has to do with staff, right? Like somebody sets something up, it's intended for something and then they leave and then somebody inherits it and they're like, Oh, what do we do? What are we going to do? Right. So you guys have obviously had a very positive experience, which I get for the listeners. I think, uh, that can be a big encouragement <laughs> because we yeah, hear well, so many war stories about it. I haven't had that many war stories. Because, um, I think the best thing we did was switch over to ECAS from that huge spray implementation we had. That could have been a problem in growth and going forward. Um, sure. We're really lucky in our organization. We have some really good Terraform experts. So they help maintain some of the Terraform. Um, we have our own ECAS uh, Terraform module that we built on top of the official EKS Terraform module. Um, there's still some debate with in our organization whether we just rewrite our own completely and not depend on the official one. Um, so that's still a debate. Um, we haven't had that many issues because I think because we went with EKS, they're very solid. Right. right. Gotcha. The The decision to do to write Terraform opposed to CloudFormation. Your thoughts? Uh, most one, you gotta remember, I came from a bare metal um, environment. I had no experience with the cloud before I got here. So once I got here, I got deep dived into AWS. So I relied a lot on the expertise of the people that were already here. And we have some very strong opinions on cloud formation versus Terraform and Terraform is a complete winner. Um, we don't like Terra. We don't like cloud formation in our organization. <laughs> we have a few leftover stuff that was written in cloud formation, like probably five years ago or more that sure. is just, we'll switch it at some point or most of the time we just ignore it and hope it goes away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, we, we see this a lot with our customers. And if you're, if you're an AWS cloud engineer, you like to use those native services, but like externalizing those workflows really provides you a lot of power, right? Like what, what if you want to go somewhere else one day, you may love AWS, but what if the world changes, then you don't have to, not all of that's living in Amazon. You're kind of future proofing your ability to make decisions. And um, we often recommend that for customers because you can take it where you want to go. Terraform's an amazing product. Actually, HashCorp has a whole lot of amazing products. But we got to remember, we're also very, um, we're made up of different um, organizations that were brought together. So they all had their own ways of working. We, um, Chrome River was a Java Python shop. We have other companies that are .NET shop. We have, uh, you know, we have some that had a little bit on Azure. So if we do buy another company, and what if they're on GKE or... Uh, Azure, right? We need to be prepared to support that without having to learn a bunch of new tools. So it's easier right. to just go with something that's cloud agnostic, even though we don't have a plan today to, you know, to have, you know, redundancy in all the various different places. Um, we might in some point in the future, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're reducing the idea of potential technical debt. So when you can pull that away, you can worry about the stuff that really matters. So 
that's technical debt. Everyone's got technical debt. Yeah, we all have a little bit, right? Or a yeah. lot. Yeah, a lot. So pivoting slightly, um, what's one thing you wish someone shared with you prior to taking on, you know, your current iteration of Kubernetes or what, what you ended up redeploying essentially? Was there, was there, uh, <laughs> like, did you walk in and you go, Oh, I didn't quite know that was going to be that. See, um, that's an interesting question. Um, I wish someone showed, shared to me and said, you know, don't use a managed system. Don't get bogged down on the control plane. I'm really glad I learned it that way because I understand it better. And I think everyone should at least study how the control plane works and uh, read up on that. But don't worry about it so much because there's so many other things that are more important. Like I mentioned earlier, all this second day operation stuff you have to do. Security, RBAC. Um, you know, metrics, uh, you know, uh, backup, uh, load balancer control, auto scaling. There's so many things that you have to concentrate on that are way more important, you know, work on right. those. And even now in the EKS, they have the, this concept of add-ons. I'm using that as much as possible now. So I don't have to worry about the core DNS, the, you know, the, um, BPC, CNI, things like that. And the more they put in there, yeah, let them manage that. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're Amazon. They're pretty good at yeah. building and maintaining infrastructure. So they're, they're just it, right? not as fast. I mean, they're still a little <laughs> behind in the EKS version, which is understandable. And if you look at the roadmap, there's still things that we want, like uh, manage node groups down to zero. I mean, it's been on that list forever and I'm waiting every day. It says coming soon, coming soon. I click the button. It still <laughs> says coming soon. Yeah. Well, well, we'll have to talk to some people, see if we can get that turned on for you. Somebody can yeah, that future that. flag. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> That's funny. Um, what's your next big area of focus uh, related to what you're doing today? There's a lot. Um, one is uh, I'm starting looking at since um, Thanksgiving, um, since I'm here all alone, my Thanksgiving uh, holiday t- tends to be a lot of ex- exploration and reading and seeing what else is out there. So I've been doing a lot of work looking at ephemeral development environments. I like that where, and then someone can come in based on a template, you know, create their own environment to work in individually. Cause me personally, I would love to use an iPad to do my work. Um, it's really hard to do it with an iPad because I can't run Terraform on my iPad. I can't run a container on my iPad, but I can hook up to, you know, a remote machine that can do all those things. And then my iPad just becomes an interface. I don't need to do a lot of compute power on my machine anymore because most of it's remote. So I like that. The other thing that I've been looking at for the past year is trying to figure out the best way to configure apps and things running on Kubernetes. We use, I mean, out there, we've got basically two main schools of thought. You've got customize and you got helm and they both tackle it in totally different ways. Helm is very variable centric Lots of templates, hard to read, customized, doesn't have any variables at all, and it's all overlays. And I don't think either one of them are right, right? I'd like to see something that combined the power of both of them. In fact, we use customize a lot, but I have a preprocessor in front of it that fills out a bunch of variables so I don't have to have a million overlays. 
but I've been looking at Qlang lately. And have you heard of Qlang? No, tell me all about it. Qlang is a, how do I describe it? It's a language that basically is a superset of JSON. So it understands YAML and JSON very well. And so you can build up a complete YAML from various different parts. It seems to me like a good middle point between Helm and Customize. I'm not an expert. I just looked at it. I'm very intrigued and I'm going to keep looking at it a little bit further. Gotcha. That's cool. I'm going to get yeah. my guys to look at it too. <laughs> um, any, any advice for technical leaders going through a Kubernetes transformation? You've been, you've absolutely. Been so what, what's the, something you could share? <laughs> the first thing I would say is read 12 factor.net and understand those concepts, right? 12 factor.net shows the 12 different aspects of a, you know, microservice, things like don't write to the file system, you know, log, you know, log to standard out, right? Things like that. Very right. simple things, but they're, they're, and you know, don't store secrets, that kind of stuff. Very, very important. Um, understand the namespace system in Kubernetes. Don't use default. Don't just throw everything in the default namespace. Um, we standardized on various different things. We have namespaces for monitoring and logging and stuff like that. So we standardize on having a dash system at the end of it, just like cube system does. So we have a monitoring dash system, a security dash system, you know, those kind of things. Those are important. And then plus, it depends how big your groups are and stuff. Maybe they all need separate namespaces or not, but just don't dump everything in one big namespace. That's what I'm saying. Right. Um, hire people that are experienced in Kubernetes. And if they're not experienced in Kubernetes, your people now, get them certified. Um, when I was a manager, uh, I'm not a manager now, but like a couple of years ago at this company, I was a manager for a little while. I made all my people study every Friday take Friday off study for the test the exam and become a CKA or a CKAD or something. Mm -hmm. So I got, you know, 75, 80% of them got their certification, which is great. Right. So now we have more people with more knowledge inside the company. You know, uh, the next thing I would say is don't ignore the day two operation stuff. Pay a lot of attention to those important things that has to be done to, to maintain your system because Kubernetes can maintain itself very well. Auto-scaling is amazing. You set up auto-scaling right, you don't have to worry about, you know, pods running out of memory or whatever. It'll just spin up a new machine and you manage that. Those are the big things I would think of. Gotcha. No, that's great. I mean, it's a good uh, couple things we can link in the uh, in the show notes. 12factor.net, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Like and Qlang, qlang.org. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So that's... That's very cool. Well, Rob, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, we don't always have such a Kubernetes focused conversation on our podcast, which I, I love because this is what we spend most of our time doing. So thanks so much for your time and your insight and sharing with us about your journey and, um, you know, helping the listeners hear about, um, things to do, things, things to not do. That's, uh, I think that's always really helpful. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me on. It was wonderful. All right. Thanks. Bye.